0: Welcome back to our latest episode in our series on fairway regrassing. I'm the host, Adam Miller, and today, USG agronomist Jordan Booth and I spoke with Brian Powell, who's the director of golf course management at Old Chatham in uh, Durham, North Carolina. We got deep into sort of this new process that he's really, I think, leading the efforts on uh, with respect to converting the Bermuda grass fairways that they had. Uh, to Zoysia Grass through a essentially like a no-till springing process. And it really seems like this process could be a game changer uh, for the industry. So uh, here's the conversation with uh, Jordan and Brian. Hope you enjoy it. Brian, welcome to the show. It's great to talk to you. And we were chatting right before we hit record how you're an NC State grad. And uh, I had the unpleasant experience just this past weekend, I was in Chapel Hill with my wife, who she's a diehard North Carolina Tar Heels fan, kind of randomly, and we were in the Top of the Hill restaurant right in downtown Chapel Hill, on campus, watching the end of that 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 game, and uh, I think it was double overtime. So I uh, I couldn't help but think of you, uh, you know, when the the crowd erupted when they scored but then it got reversed and it, you know it was it was a, a bit of a letdown for everyone that was in that restaurant so I couldn't help but think, think of you.
1: I tell you what it was a good day to be an NC State fan and, and a Wolfpack supporter. We've, we've been lucky in that in football I think we've won seven of the last ten meetings. Basketball is something we won't talk about on this podcast though because we've not been so lucky in the basketball side.
0: Yeah, we'll keep going with the football train. We're, we're going to talk all about um and the project you guys have got going on. But before we dive into that, can you give us a little info uh, about the course? Um, you know, some of the maybe the unique characteristics of the property and, and something that you really think is, is a special part there.
1: Yeah, I, and I appreciate the opportunity to be able to talk about this. As I think it's a great topic for uh, the growth of golf. And um, I think it's good for the industry to be looking at how to renovate existing facilities as uh, it seems like that's kind of the cycle that we're heading into now after coming off of a heavy construction cycle in the late 90s of building new golf courses. Old Chatham is a it's a private 18-hole facility. It's located on uh, just over 400 acres. It was originally designed by Reese Jones and Greg Muirhead in 1999. It opened for golf in 2001. Uh, we have a small membership. We have do a limited amount of, of uh, rounds annually. We're somewhere in the range of about 15 to 18,000 rounds of golf a year. In the past, had warm season grasses uh, everywhere except the greens, which used to be bent grass. Uh, we made a conversion in 2012 to ultra-dwarf Bermudas on the greens, so we're now warm season grasses everywhere, with the exceptions of some out-of-play areas. We have some Sheep fescues, meadow fescues, that type of thing, hard fescues in the out-of-play areas. And we have some native grasses around the facility as well, too. Some muley grasses and whatnot, some switch grasses. The membership is a very active one. One of the one requirements to be invited to join here is you have to love golf. Uh, We don't have anything other than a golf club. And as such, our uh, members tend to have a pretty high golf IQ. Golf is something that's because that's all we have, something that we try to present to them as in a manner that's most pleasing to them. Uh, I've been lucky enough to be here since we built the facility, uh, so um, it's been really fun and a great ride to watch the facility age over the last 21 years.
0: And Brian, you you guys have a I mean a a long standing reputation for being a really you know high high quality conditioning. Um, you've you've had some some big time events there over the time so uh, that over the time that you've been there. So I guess. Let's start with, like, wh- what were some of the motivations for regrassing uh, at Old Chatham? Because I'm, I'm guessing you were still maintaining some high-quality fairways and, you know, things were, were by and large, pretty good. Um, so we'll, we'll touch on sort of the specifics of, like, picking Zoro Zoysia grass uh, in, a, in a few minutes. But, you know, what were the motivations for Zoysia grass um, instead of Bermuda? And, you know, kind of talk to us a little bit about what you think the strengths and weaknesses of Zoysia uh, you know, of that grass compared to the Bermuda grasses that, um, that you had?
1: Well, you know, Bermuda grass is a fantastic playing surface in its own right. We had really good playing surfaces here for the duration of uh, our utilization of Bermuda grasses on our fairways prior to this conversion. And we also had uh, a limited water supply uh, when we first built the facility. And we felt like it when the facility was created. That limited water supply might get in the way of us utilizing zoysia right out of the chute because we were concerned that we would need more water to grow it in than we need for Bermuda grass. At that time, all the zoysias that we would have used would have been the hyponicas. So there would have been, you know, Meyer, Emerald, that type of thing. And our experience with them was such that we thought it would probably require more water than we might safely have to do a grow in. So we ruled zoysia out at the beginning and um, defaulted to Bermuda, which. As I said earlier, it's a a great surface in its own right. Having said that, Bermuda we use, which was 419, it certainly is uh, no stranger to mutations. And our 419 um, came with some mutations. It also started mutating shortly after it was put in the ground. And we ended up with kind of a splotchy, uh, almost argyle look in our fairways, which Aesthetically was distracting when you're trying to play golf and you're trying to look out over the target uh, and the landing area. It also creates a little bit of a different playing surface depending on where your golf ball is. If you happen to be in a mutation that was more sparse or thin, you know, if we've had if we'd had a couple of weeks of wet, overcast weather, you might have a golf ball that's sitting on uh, dirt, kind of between the plants, if you will. So you you might have that kind of shot to hit your ball from. And five feet or 10 feet over from you, there may be someone sitting on something that's more like the original phenotype for 419, which is nice and dense, and the golf ball sitting on nothing but grass. So we really wanted to consider changing the fairways out to get back to the consistency that we had and we uh, enjoyed when we first opened. With the uh, work that's been done to breed the matrillas, the zoysia matrillas, we really liked the fine textured nature of them. Um, it kind of went from... You can have a Haponica that is more cold tolerant, that's a bigger leaf, doesn't play quite as well as Bermuda, but it's got some good properties to it. To the Matrillas, which were, uh, there's a lot of breeding work in the late 90s on that created a lot of these fine textured Zoysias, which went from being as fine textured as a a, a way or 419 variant of Bermuda grass to even finer texture in some instances, and they create just really phenomenal golf surfaces. So when it was time to do this and to regrass, uh, and we felt like we had the water that we needed, uh, Zoysia seemed like the perfect thing to go with. In a general kind of overarching way, that's the real reason that we converted to Zoysia was to get back to a consistent playing surface, and also to take advantage of innovation and have a playing surface that is was superior to what we had. So that's that's really why we converted.
2: Brian, I, I know we've talked about this a lot, but was converting the fairways to Zoysia the major catalyst for the renovation, or was it kind of part of the larger scope of work that you you undertook uh, over the last year or so?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a great great question, Jordan. You know, one of the things that we wanted to do, and that precipitated this renovation, was we wanted to tweak our 16th hole. Old Chatham is a really great design. Reese Jones and Greg Muir had did a phenomenal job in creating it. But one thing that we've done over the years, the 20 years we've been open is we've continued to tweak its its design and its plan. The back nine is particularly strong, but in the finishing sequence of holes, we always felt like the 16th hole was an average or even maybe a little better than average hole on most golf courses but it didn't quite have the stature to really hold its own with the phenomenal other closing holes that we had. So while it wasn't a bad hole, we always wanted, or always looked at it as, you know what could we do to this hole and uh, to tweak it and make it better. And about 10 years ago, Greg Muirhead and Reese came up with a, a different design concept for the hole, which would cause us to add a uh, water feature to it and make some other changes to it. Uh, additionally, we also had some mutations on our ultra dwarf greens, and they were doing some of the same things I was alluding to regarding the Bermuda fairways. When the mutations would really be obvious in the latter part of summer, and you'd have these long summer days, we would start getting these little patches on the greens that had a little bit of a different putting quality to them. They still rolled well, but there was just a little bit of an inconsistency there that we didn't really want to continue to tolerate for the type of golfing experience our members really expect so this was really a redesign of the 16th hall and re the greens type of project when you start talking about those things now you're looking at okay you're going to be closed for probably 12 weeks or so and then we turn to what else can we do while we're closed and we already knew we needed to do something with the fairway so while the zoysia was predicted to be the thing that probably would have the biggest wow factor and it certainly has Uh, It really was a secondary project that we were able to complete just simply because we were going to be closed for these other two main projects.
2: And so during the fairway conversion, were you able to keep the course kind of partially open for any part of that? Or when you shut down, did did the renovation really begin at that point?
1: We really only had our practice, our main practice tee open. So the members could still come out for at limited times and they could still hit uh, balls and practice off the main tee. But the facility itself was closed uh, because we ended up having to close all the greens uh, as well as the rest of the facility because of the uh, comprehensive nature of it.
0: I think one of the, the biggest challenges that we hear with fairway regrassing, especially with uh, with warm season turf, is to sort of wipe the slate clean and, and take out the Bermudas. So uh, I wanted to dive into really kind of the the nuts and bolts of it, you know, when, you know, when did you get started with the regrassing component of the renovation? What were sort of the key parts of your strategy, uh, you know, when it came to actually kill off the Bermuda and, and keep it out? Like, what products did you use? Did you throw like ammonium sulfate in the, in the tank? You know, number of applications, uh, things like that.
1: On a project like this, as you all know, it's certainly, the devil's certainly the details. We were lucky enough that we took a large area on our practice facility landing area or landing fairway, if you will. And we started doing experiments uh, a couple of years ago prior to this project to see what would work and to try to develop some best management practices. And what we did and what we settled on here was um, we moved forward on some work and some research that Dr. Fred Yelverton and Travis Gannon had done at North Carolina State University on Bermuda grass eradication, which involved high rates of glyphosate while the Bermuda was actively growing with repeat applications of about um, every three to four weeks. In our specific case, uh, what we settled on uh, was we made two separate applications before closing the facility. Uh, The first application was done in mid-April and it was only done in mid-April because we had active growing Bermuda to apply it to. And that first application was a combination of Roundup Pro uh, which is glyphosate and a 13% surfactant. And the glyphosate was applied at 117 ounces an acre. Mixed with that was fusilade two, and that was applied at 26 ounces an acre. Again, that was applied on the 12th of April. Uh, that time of year, with the type of growth conditions we had, it wasn't really visible to the golfers uh, until sometime around, the last week of April, so they didn't visibly see the turf starting to discolor until about the end of April. We then followed that up with another application on the 18th of May. This application had Roundup Pro only in it, and it was the same rate. It was at 117 ounces an acre with a 13% surfactant, and it had no fusillade in it on the second application, and again, that was the 18th of May. Now the 18th of May application was really an application on plants that had already begun to re-green and to regrow. So what we saw in our research was, and I think that Dr. Yalberton's research kind of bears this out, more so than following a schedule on the second application, you need to make sure you're applying it when you have something growing back. And the work we had done the prior year, we couldn't quite duplicate some of the work some others have done by adding ammonium sulfate to the mixture. I think ammonium sulfate makes sense. Uh, we just couldn't duplicate that, the results that others were seeing. You know, I think that's we start contemplating ammonium sulfate to add to the tank or to add to this mix. I don't know. It's an interesting, it's an interesting thing to consider. On the one hand, if you told me you had injured turf that was injured as a result of winter kill and you discovered it in April and you're going to have to make an application of something to the turf in May, what would you do to maybe boister it? And I would probably say ammonium sulfate. I would probably put ammonium sulfate out. So I don't know if there's a fine line between getting the turf growing such that it can translocate the herbicide with the ammonium sulfate, or if you go just past that line that, well, you're really making a plant that's vigorous enough, it might, Better recover from a glyphosate application. I I just I don't know, but we couldn't duplicate it, so that's why we we did not use the money in sulfate in our in our eradication process. And then our actual closing was the uh, 24th of May. So uh, one week after that second application, we closed, and sprigging and planting actually began on the 25th of May.
0: So once you closed, what are the preparations for the? you know, the seed bed look like? What did you guys do there? I mean, is it, you just sort of clean things up, verticut stuff, aerated? What, what, what did that look like?
1: Well, that, that's, that's also something that uh, trial and error um, led us to hone and perfect. I can tell you going into it before we started doing our research, I expected to aggressively verticut, to scalp, to aerate, to do all those things you would normally do for a really good seed bed preparation. Almost get the ground back to bare dirt if you could. And what we actually discovered was that didn't work the best. What worked the best was for us simply to go out and plant right into what was left. This is something that's now had two glyphosate applications on it. The first one had fusilate in it, which is quite injurious to Bermuda grass. And what you really have is almost kind of a beaten down straw type of um, seed bed, if you will. And as long as that seed bed or sprig bed is soft enough to get for the sprigger to be able to penetrate. That really was the best prep that we we had and we saw. We did research where you aerated and you had aeration holes out there where we removed the cores. We left the cores. We verticut down to dirt. We did all of that, and frankly, just leaving the dead material there worked the best. My hunch is it's probably got something to do with that dead material holding a little bit of moisture on it in the first week or two of the sprig growth. Uh, it could also have something to do with the fact that that little bit of old plant material creates uh, kind of a three-dimensional web, if you will, to keep the sprigs from moving around a lot during light rains. Um, I'm not really sure, but we basically did a no-till application and a no-till planting that has been um, more the vogue in Bermuda grass greens conversions over the last 10 years, but we did it on our fairways.
2: That's really interesting, Brian. I, I think You know, I've told you this in in person, but I I think this is going to be a real, you know, trend that we've already seen, you know, other golf courses in the transition zone starting to think about. But as we talk more into details, where where did you settle on Zorro versus some of the other uh, Matrellas?
1: All the new Matrellas or the Matrellas that I've dealt with are all really good quality grasses. Gone is the day that one of them is so different so better than the rest that it's an easy decision for our club we selected zorro because zorro has a little bit more of a round leaf than some of the other matrellas so in that regard it's more like a very tiny warm season fine fescue plant in its shape Uh, what we found that created as a golfing surface was a little bit less resistance for golf ball roll, maybe a little bit less resistance also for a club. It was a little bit more wispy if it got a little bit long in a spot and it got between a golf ball and the, and the grooves of an iron for an iron shot hit into a green. Kind of as a nice bonus, it's aesthetically the most showy of the matrillas in my opinion. It has a beautiful stripe such that if you didn't know what you were playing on in the summer. Mm-hmm. Other than the fact that it's a little more apple green versus dark green, you probably would think you're playing on a ryegrass-striped fairway because it's just so brilliant. Through our due diligence and through our research, we ended up traveling to multiple different facilities and golf clubs and looking at some of the different zoysias that were out there. And two of the best examples of phenomenal Zorro are at uh, Peachtree in Atlanta, where William Shirley is the golf course superintendent, and uh, Atlanta Athletic Club, where Lucas Harvey is. Our other Matrella that we considered very hev- very closely and very heavily was Xeon. Xeon's a phenomenal uh, Matrella Also, we have it out here on our tees, and we have a very high opinion of it. Our trip to uh, Atlanta Athletic Club was helpful in that they had 18 holes that were grassed with Zoro and 18 that were grassed with Xeon. And while they were both phenomenal, they really were good. We liked the Zoro a little bit more, and that's why we went with it. I do know there's some other zor uh, matroles that are out and have been out and released more recently than either of those two, and uh, I think they could also make some very good playing surfaces. I know some of the other ones that have been released more recently um, have a very tight texture to them, so much that it, it might be a little bit challenging for you know maybe a 10 handicap golfer to hit a golf ball off of. Uh, so there's probably some more due diligence and some more, let's call it life out in the field that needs to happen with those before we would consider using them here. The work they've done with them over the years is phenomenal. We're thrilled to have Zorro.
0: You know, one of the common challenges that I hear, um, you know, we've we've got more folks in sort of the mid-Atlantic states uh, that are considering Bermuda grass or Zoysia grass. Um, for fairways, just knowing the the challenges that growing bentgrass fairways in that part of the world presents, uh, but a common challenge that most point to with zoysia is the establishment process, and you know sodding is is obviously very expensive. Sprigging can can take some time. There are some there's there's uh, two seeded varieties of uh, of zoysia, but that, that can take some time too, and, and may not provide the the leaf texture like you're talking about um, with the Zoro. So. How did you guys get to the point where you sort of went and said, all right, sprigging is, is the better option for us for this project versus sod? Um, and then kind of a follow-up to that, like, what do you think the benefits and challenges are with, uh, with sprigging?
1: If I could build an, uh, my ideal playing surface, and it was going to be a warm season grass, and I could establish it with an infinite amount of time, let's say you were going to give me three or four years to establish it, I think myself and my, and my peers would all pick sprigging, because when you sprig, uh, there's less chance you're going to end up with some type of geometric pattern out there if it has a mutation in it, when you, like you might have when you bring in sod. When you sprig, you're bringing in little, if any, soil, so the opportunity to bring something in with the soil is much more reduced. When you sprig, you're not bringing in a matte layer. Or a thatch layer that may already be present in the sprigs, excuse me, in the sod. When you open after a sprig grow in, it's a better playing surface because you don't have that little bit of pad under your feet. I mean, you have a nice firm surface underfoot and it looks like a homogenous um, uh, surface or homogenous area. If you apply or have to apply a pesticide to a spr- A sodded area. That If the sod in a given area has come from two different spots on the same farm that was supplying it, sometimes you end up with a little different texture in the soil and it will bind up the pesticide at a little different rate and you can actually get some differences as well that continue to show this geometric pattern of where you use sod. For us, sprigging is a better result. It certainly takes longer historically and it certainly takes more inputs on the grow end, and it certainly is a little bit more risky in case you have some type of weather event that washes away an area. Also, one of the negatives of springing typically is the fact that when you do a brand-new golf club, it's typically a bare dirt scenario. So on an existing facility, you have a soil erosion to contend with, and if you want to be a good steward of of the environment, that's certainly something that sod would give you a better uh, means to... um, build a new golf course. So there's an area where sod might be better. In our case, we looked at doing a no-till sprig operation because we wanted a better playing surface for all the reasons I've already mentioned. And because it's no-till, the soil was going to be in place because we weren't removing soil and we weren't digging anything up, if you will, to be able to do the planting. What led us to the sprigging was something I noticed several years ago. I built a sod farm for someone about 20 years ago, and we were going to we were going to grow zoysia. And everything I was taught in school was you don't sprig zoysia. And so it occurred to me in trying to cost project out what it's going to cost to build a sod farm, uh, I think we were going to have maybe 10 acres of zoysia or something like that. I was going to have to go buy someone else's 10 acres of zoysia and ship it. And when I called the supplier for or the potential supplier for our zoysia and I was telling him all this, he said, well, why would you do that? Why don't you sprig it? And I said, well, in school, I was told zoysia takes too long to grow it in. And he said, well, whenever we do that, we just, have, we just add to the sprig rate. What led us to sprigging our zoysia was the research we did on sprig rates. And in effect, what we did was we upped the amount of sprigs that we put out. It's still far cheaper than sodding. It's better for the environment because you don't have to um, strip everything down to bare dirt again and run the uh, risk of having massive soil erosion when you're growing in sprigs from scratch. And when you up the sprig rate to a higher number of sprigs per acre, you end up with something on top of the ground that actually helps add to the moisture holding content of the sprig itself. So instead of one sprig and then you see an area the size of maybe a silver dollar between it and the next sprig, uh, sitting there, drying out in the hot sun, if you will. When you up the sprig rates really high you end up with what almost looks like a little bit of a mulch type product on the ground which holds the moisture really well for the reasons i mentioned for quality and finished product we we sprigged as a result of research we did we knew that we could do it in our test plot we did uh, before we opened we sprigged an acre out in our landing area to test uh, there's another thing that i'll mention a little bit later and it's a, a product we've helped syngenta develop for Bermuda grass eradication on existing Zoysia, that's a phenomenal product which has great promise. Uh, we also were able to use that product and experiment with it in coordination with uh, Syngenta. And based on the results of that product, we were just to- we were buoyed with our confidence that we would be able to do this. So I know that's a long answer, but it's it's a it's a big consideration when you try and decide how you're going to regress you know twenty to twenty five acres of your golf course.
2: Yeah, Brian, I I think that's an amazing thought process to go through, and it took a lot of risk to decide to sprig, and I know you did a lot of extensive research and kind of preparation that you're alluding to, you know, in order to to take that risk and and kind of be a a leader in the the area and take the risk of sprigging, and I know you alluded to some of those uh, research projects you did. Can you go a little bit deeper into the details of, you know, looking at different sprig rates and springing methods, and just fill us in on, on all the preparation and research you did to have the confidence to uh, to try to sprig your fairways to zoysia grass.
1: One of the things that we we used was past experience with other grow-ins. I've grown in several other golf courses, and it always seemed like when we were doing using Bermuda, maybe we'd get a little bit behind on a haul or a couple of hauls. We would go out and Uh, we would up the sprig rate to try to get that hole grown in faster. And it seemed to always work well because also the later you get into the season, typically the warmer the soil is. So it actually grows in, what you plant grows in faster the later you get. So when you up the sprig rate, we saw results typically with Bermuda. So where we started with our zoysia sprig rates uh, with uh, Zorro was in the range of about 1,200 Georgia bushels per acre. Sorry to be so specific, but I've, I've also been educated now to know that a bushel is not a bushel is not a bushel. There's a Texas bushel and a Georgia bushel. It's pretty important you find out if you're contemplating it, which one you're dealing with. We put out uh, 1,200 Georgia bushel bushels per acre of Zorro in one plot, 1,600 in another plot, and 2,000 in the final plot I'll jump right to the end and say after 16 weeks, the 1600 bushel rate and the 2000 bushel rate were both 100% grown in. So we didn't see a difference at the end of the 16 weeks between the two, the 1200 bushel rate was very good, but it probably had as much as 10% voids that were not yet grown in. I think if a golf course had a longer growing season, Uh, was maybe south of us or east of us, they might get away with 1,200 bushels or if they're willing to let it grow in a little bit the next season, you might get away with that. But 1,600 from our research was certainly the number that was required to get you at 100% growing at 16 weeks. When we did some experimenting with the different rates and the different methods. We also looked at hand sprigging, which is certainly something you're going to have to do when you get in the tight little corners and you can't get a big tractor and a big sprigging machine near those corners or near an irrigation head or what have you. We looked at hand sprigging. We also looked at no-till sprigging. Now there's two types of sprigging machines that are typically in use, to, or two styles that are typically in use today. The, the most common, most well-known is a regular sprigging machine. Also less common, only a few sod producers have them, is what's called a no-till sprigging machine. And we we did our work, our research, with a a no-till sprigging machine. It was supplied by Modern Turf, which was out of South Carolina. The sprigging done with that machine was very, very successful, and the hand sprigging was very successful. So while we used a no-till sprigging machine, based on the hand sprigging, probably could get away if you just hand sprigged an area with 1,600 to 2,000 bushels an acre without using a no-till sprigger. We didn't do so many acres of hand sprigging that I would necessarily bank on that, but it's my hunch that probably would be successful also. Our process of sprigging was in our test trials as well as the facility when we got out there. As I mentioned, we did no prep before other than the herbicide applications. So you have grass that's no longer growing. It's straw colored. It's kind of beaten down. It's just beginning to kind of rot. We made sure that that bed, if you will, was moist enough that the sprigging machine could penetrate the ground where the uh, vertical wheels, vertical metal wheels were. This looks looks sort of like an agricultural disk, if you will. and that was typically a, you know, done with maybe a tenth of an inch of irrigation at the most. Uh, so we make sure we had adequate moisture there. Uh, and then we, we did the sprigging with two directions at a minimum everywhere. So we would go over an area, then turn around and come back the same path, or we would go on the diagonal, but at least two directions. Uh, so the sprigs that were first put down, put down, they get ran back over again as you're putting out another a swath of sprigs on top of them. Uh, that was followed by top dressing sand. We used the equivalent of 30 tons of sand per acre. Uh, the sand we were using was basically like a mortar sand. Uh, there are lots of sands that I think will work. I don't think you have to have any super expensive sand. I would try to get one that is has as little weed seed in it as possible. I would also try to get one that if possible you can go look at the pile Uh, maybe the year before you need it or as early as you can beforehand and do a site visit at the plant or or the mine and just look at the pile as it got weeds growing on it growing in it or not Um, and then once you pass uh, those requirements and you're putting down a sand that's not so fine textured that it will choke off the drainage of your fairway there's a lot of sands that will work for you and and you should be able to find one that's pretty inexpensive uh, so we would – we then put the – as I mentioned, we put the 30 tons of sand out per acre. We follow that immediately with a roller. Now, that doesn't have to be anything fabulous or or uh, amazing. It can be a greens roller, uh, but you want to be able to roll the sand because the purpose of the sand is not so much truing up the surface as you're really making a sandwich. So you, you have the soil underneath, the old plant bed underneath, if you will, you have the sprigs, and then you have the sand on top. And the main benefit we've seen from the sand is actually to be able to hold moisture and kind of hold the sprigs in place. So it's not so much that you're putting out that rate of sand to make things smooth. That's a lot of sand, but what you're really doing is you're putting out enough sand to be able to hold some moisture there to keep the sprigs alive, particularly in that first week or so. That's the real benefit of that sand application. And that's also why when you roll it, you know it goes from being just a product that was dropped on the ground and loose to something that kind of has a little bit of a, a cohesive tendency to stick to other sand grains. So it kind of stays in place better. After that process, you then wanna be able to irrigate that area from what we saw in our research as much as seven to 12 times a day. Now, we're hot area and uh, we get about 42 inches of rain a year in North Carolina on average. And when I say seven to 12 times a day, I'm really only talking about just a little more than one rotation of an irrigation head. The type of heads we were using, it takes them about three minutes to make one revolution as on a 360 degree arc. So when I say seven to 12 times a day, that's only about 35 minutes total that day. So it isn't 10 minutes seven times you know you don't want to create a rice paddy out there because the only thing that requires the water to start with is the sprig you're not watering soil you're not watering what's under the sprig you're just keeping the sprig moist so that it can survive the shock of the planting and the temperature extreme because it's something that's sitting there really not growing in anything that's seven to twelve times a day typically will last about 10 days, and then you can start backing that down a little bit as far as the number of times a day you you irrigate. And when you start backing that down, I do wanna mention this, when you, even though it's a warm season grass, you know, these zoysias, these matrillas, they're not, you know, they can get diseases just like the cool season grasses. When you start cutting your watering back, it's, you know, give us some, give some thought about the way you do that. Specifically, you know, we know that if, if if you have a wet leaf for more than 14 hours, it's much more prone to being a conducive site for a disease to develop. So make your first irrigation at the beginning of the day to get the dew off the plant. Then you don't have to irrigate again in my area until, say, 10 a.m. because it's not, the sprig's not going to dry out enough for it to, to die, but you did get the dew off, and it, it, you give it a chance to dry a little bit. You need to have an irrigation computer set up before you sprig you need to have the programs already built, because this type of, this type of um, run times and start times, is, it's, it's almost impossible to do that by hand if you need to.
2: Tell us a little bit about this new product recognition and, and all the work you did in preparation for the, for the SPRIG project um, and, and how that applies to, to not only your decision to, to SPRIG zoysia grass, but also your uh, ability to ma- manage it moving forward.
1: We had the opportunity to work with Syngenta on a new product that they were working on. And uh, the product has since got an EPA registration is being released under the name recognition. It's a really phenomenal product. What we discovered here in the couple of years that we had it uh, and were working with Syngenta was that it, it has a, I would describe it as a safening effect in that it allows the application of certain products, certain herbicides on zoysias or St. Augustine's at labeled rates that might otherwise be injurious typically. So for example, you know, Fusilade is a great product. And it's very good at uh, damaging Bermuda grass that's growing in zoysia that's unwanted. However, you have to be very careful with the way you apply it because sometimes you'll injure the, the zoysia as a result of the fusilate application Well, the beauty of recognition is it is so safe and creates such a a window of opportunity. We were able to apply it to sprigs that were only 12 days old with fuselade at fuselade rates that were 24 all the way up to 50-so ounces an acre in the test plots, and you couldn't tell we did anything at all to the zoysia and it absolutely hammered the Bermuda grass at those rates. We were able to continue to repeat this. In fact, one thing I would even mention, Adam and, and Jordan, is based on what we saw from this product, in our trials, and this has since been, I've been told this has been repeated at University of Tennessee and University of Georgia, you could actually probably plant zoysia sprigs on top of green, healthy, growing Bermuda grass. And then seven days later, apply this product with Fusillade and make one or two more applications 30 days later. And at the end of 16 weeks, you will have a 100% Zoysia grass stand as opposed to the Bermuda stand you started with. And I think this is, this is a big deal because what it really means is, and I, I, describe what we did at old Chatham. We started damaging the turf a month before we closed. With what we did in with these test trials with recognition and what's been repeated at other places now, we literally put Zoysia sprigs on top of perfectly healthy Bermuda that was golf could have been played on the day before. Seven days later applied Fusilade at the high label rates with this product. We did it two more times at 30 day intervals and at the end of 16 weeks, we couldn't find Bermuda grass. It was totally eradicated in that spot as best we could tell. And we looked and we did plant counts and it's extremely impressive. So I think the future of even the conversion that we're discussing today, based on what we saw here and what we saw in the research trials and what it sounds like UGA and UT are discovery, probably aren't going to do what we mentioned we did. You're probably not going to spray Roundup. You're probably not going to spray Roundup and Fusillate. You're probably going to be open in playing golf on perfectly healthy turf the day before you, you plant, you're going to plant and then probably put recognition out. And at the end of 16 weeks, I mean, good luck finding Bermuda grass. I think you'll have a, a total conversion at that point. So it's a really unique, interesting product. And the test trials um, and the research plots, now dealing with the, the technical. There were tests done with fuselate at 90 ounces an acre where the technical rate was increased, and it was safe. Now, the product that's been released since recognition, it's a different ratio than that, but I can tell you that at 48 ounces an acre, it's so safe. We put it on our brand-new sprigs on our grow-in. We went out at 48 ounces of fuselade an acre, and— absolutely hammered the Bermuda grass that wasn't killed by our two pre-plant glyphosate uh, applications and saw absolutely no mortality at all in the zoysia that we had planted. In fact, we didn't see anything that even was akin to slowing the growth rate up. So um, it's it's an amazing product. And for facilities that already have zoysia, they're trying to get Bermuda grass out of it. The only thing I could say is you you need to know how large a population of Bermuda you have because it works. I mean, you spray it, it's going to kill what's there. So you better know know how much you're killing.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I've uh, seen Dr. Treadway doing that work throughout the Pinehurst area and down through Atlanta. And of course, so much of it at your place. And speaking with a superintendent today in the Richmond, Virginia area, who's going to sprig to zoysia grass next year, his plan is to simply... Uh, make one application, a roundup, followed by, you know, sprigging two weeks later, followed by multiple applications of recognition. So that really even shortens your, you know, your kind of disturbance window and, and the length of your project. Um, while, you know, while you can play on Bermuda grass while it's dying, it's nice to to really feel like it's all being done in one season. So really exciting product, something that, that I think really opens up potential for projects like this. Absolutely. So Jordan, you mentioned that you think the one
0: season sprigging is potential here. So, you know, that's always a question of essentially what's the amount of time that it took you guys, uh, you know, in this process, you know, basically the day you were closed to the day you were back open.
1: We closed for 16 weeks uh, and we opened 16 weeks after the initial sprigging. We had two very heavy rains. Well, first of all, let me back up a minute. That's the start of sprigging I'm referencing. It took us almost two weeks to finish sprigging. Um, you know, when you're sprigging at these rates, it's a slower process than what you would typically sprig Bermuda grass with because it's that's a lot of sprigs growing going on the ground. For us, we could sprig about a hole and a half a day based on the 2,000 sprig rate per acre we went with. Now, if you go at 1,600, and I, I don't see any reason why you couldn't, or you have more no-till spriggers on site for the planting, obviously you can cut that window down. But when I talk about 16 weeks, we open 16 weeks from the initial sprigging. So we actually opened with a couple of the fairways being only about 14 weeks old. Those fairways also had just over two and a half inch rain that occurred about three days after planting. And we had a lot of damage. We had some sand that got moved around. We got some low areas where the water kind of puddled and it got hot. And uh, we had a couple of voids in those two fairways. And we did do some patchwork in those. Uh, but even then, when you start looking at the math and you say to yourself, you know, we're going to, we have 20, let's say you have 23 acres to do. What's a bad scenario? You need one acre of sod. That's only four trucks. If you need five, and you're still hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars cheaper than doing a Zoysia sod. And that doesn't even mention the amount of exposure you and your facility have for soil erosion. If you try to get it down to bare dirt to put sod down to start with, it's a 16 week process. You know, that might vary depending on where you're located. You know, you want to be able to sprig, in my opinion, when the zoysia sprigs are actively growing, where they're harvested, and you want to be able to put them down on soils that are at least warm enough for goosegrass germination. Because unlike Bermuda grass, a zoysia sprig does nothing but sit there for about 16 to 18 days. You do not see rooting. You don't see a flush of growth. It just sits there, and it's it sits there a lot longer than a Bermuda sprig does. I do think in our testing we overthought or overanalyzed when to start sprigging. You know, we were thinking sprig, you know, around Memorial Day. You know, that's when Bermuda typically in our area starts actively growing laterally um, somewhere around then, and um, that's kind of what we were thinking. Retrospectively, I would have started in mid-May just because. I think the sprigs need some time to get through the shock of being transplanted, and I don't think you're losing anything because I think even though it's a little cooler then, they wouldn't have grown anyway. I think you probably could start the process in mid-May in our area. That might shorten it a little bit on the back end, but in our test plots and on our research as well as what we did here, it's a 16-week process.
0: A couple follow-ups to that. Did you open right away to CARTs? and then talk a little bit about the differences with cultural practices between the Bermuda and the Zoysia for instance are you at the same height of cut that you were with uh, the Bermuda and you know what about like seed head suppression apps with the with the Zoysia any any thoughts there yeah
1: you know, zoysia is a tough plant to cut with the real mower it's a, it's a stiffer plant and as such you have to have sharp mowers to cut it well and mowers that mow it per hour they are mowing will dull more quickly than on Bermuda grass from our research and from what we've seen from the other facilities we looked at when we were trying to develop our best management practices. So what I would recommend from what we saw and what we have done here and then what we did with our test plots is I would groom it every time it's being mowed. We don't typically fairway groom when we're mowing with Bermuda grass. But I do think if, if you can install groomers on your fairy moors, you have a much better product and you have a much better end result with Zoysia because there are gonna be some times that you were mowing the last few holes a little bit dull because again, it will dull the moors more a little bit more quickly than Bermuda grass. Uh, and when you have those vertical um, blades running, I hate to use the word vertical cut, uh, but I guess I would use what Chris Hartwiger and Patrick O'Brien kind of started the industry, which is more of a three-dimensional mowing type of thought. You have these vertical blades running on a groomer. You still get a good quality cut and you still have a good playing surface. So everything we mow now that's, zo- that's zoysia, when we mow, it's being groomed. However, we're grooming at a very shallow depth we're literally just trying to hit the leaf only. We're not trying to get stem, we're not trying to do anything other than just get the leaf. And when you groom frequently, you also discover that you don't really get the scalping, you do from infrequent grooming that was, is more common in, in, in our industry. So if if a mower goes out and leaves our shop to mow zoysia, it's got a groomer on it and the groomer's gonna be running. Going back to the first part of what you asked me, Adam, we're at the exact same mowing heights we were on our 419. Our fairways opened at four hundredths of an inch, which is our um, bench setting. And our approaches are at four hundredths of an inch to 375 in height. So a little more than a third of an inch around our greens. And we found at those heights, we're getting really good playing conditions and we're really happy with them. And, and I'll just jump to the end too and tell you, our members absolutely love this playing surface. I mean, they love this playing surface. We talked about the work we were going to do here to the 16th Hall. We talked about the work we were going to do to redesign our bunkers. We talked about the work we were going to do to regrass the greens. The day we opened, all our members could talk about was the Zoysia Fairways. They loved the rest. All that was kind of what they were expecting, but the number of people that came in. And just kept saying over and over, wow, those fairways are like cheating. They're so good. <laughs> the <laughs> golf ball just sitting up there. So that makes you feel good. It makes you feel really good in our industry to be able to deliver something that meets the expectation of our members or our customers or their guests. That's that's a lot of fun. And because we use Zorro, it's a very showy product. I mean, it stripes up beautifully. So you got these beautiful stripes out there, too. So same height. And lots of grooming. Uh, and, and again, the grooming is done very lightly, but at the moors out there, we're cutting horizontally and we're cutting vertically as well.
2: That's uh, awesome to hear and it's it's really impressive how you've really gone about creating the playbook you know for this establishment process, grow in maintenance all the way through. And as I think about you know heading into winter, what are your plans do you plan to Use any pigments or paints, or let the surface naturally go dormant. What are your plans uh, for the Zorro fairways this winter, Brian?
1: We will be painting. I think painting is a fantastic process. Um, we we have painted. We painted our Bermuda grass here before. Uh, we painted our Zoysia test plots prior. We've actually already got the first coat out on uh, a a Zorro. It happens to be a Zeon T. Uh, already, uh, so we will be painting. Um, you know, one thing that is obvious: paint warms the ground. I can tell you at Old Shatham, everything we've seen backs up the research the universities have done, which is you know a dark surface is warmer. And if you paint, you're probably going to pick up seven to maybe ten days of growth on your warm season of grass when it comes out of dormancy. So it it has a it has a benefit to it and if you're getting old like I am, it's also kind of nice to look out there and see your golf ball in the fairway, uh, which, which is a little harder to do on dormant grass. It's not painted.
2: <laughs> yeah. The, the benefits of painting zoysia grass, I was at a golf course today. I mean, I think that it really makes it pop even more so than maybe some other grasses. Um, and you've, you've mentioned some of the environmental benefits of not sodding and stripping, you know, all of the, all the existing turf off. Um, but you know, you've been a real steward in the Carolinas and, with state initiatives and Audubon certification at Old Chatham, do you think that widespread fairway regrassing is it going to have any other environmental benefits or um, resource reduction in your mind? I think it will.
1: It's very obvious to me that because of its its growth rate compared to Bermuda grass, you will be able to mow it less frequently than Bermuda grass, and of course, everything that comes with that. Comes with that. So less fuel use, um, less man hours, um, less emissions from the equipment that's doing the work, that's doing the mowing. And I don't know precisely what that's going to be. I don't know if it means if you mow, um, if your facility that mows 25 times in a month in the summer during the growing season, if you're going to go to 20 or precisely what that might mean per facility. But I can definitely tell you it doesn't require the frequency of mowing the Bermuda grass does. Dr. Richardson at Arkansas did some phenomenal work with fertility rates on um, some of these these zoysias. One of the things that we did in our our due diligence for this is we were looking at different fertility rates to grow in zoysia. And on Bermudas, there are times that um, on a sprigged fairway, you might put out a pound of nitrogen a week trying to grow it in. And the plant can absorb it and it can use it and it's possibly necessary. Uh, when we were starting to try to do research on fertility rates to grow in Zoysia from sprigs, we ran across his research and some of the research he had done, and he said, his research basically said two to two and a half pounds in was about the maximum you would get any benefit from. And, you know, I've grown in plenty of Bermuda fairways. I thought there's no way it's got to require more than that. And yet. I'm here to tell you, we just grew a golf course in with zoysia sprigs, and we only used two and a half pounds of nitrogen for the entire grow-in. And we probably could have done it on just a little more than two. You know, zoysia responds, particularly these matrilas, respond differently to nitrogen inputs when you compare them to Bermuda grass. Our test plots, same thing. We only grew them in with two pounds of nitrogen. What does that mean long-term? To me, Jordan, it means we're definitely going to be using less nitrogen fertility than we would have used prior with our 419 based on the length of our growing season here we were using around three and a half pounds of nitrogen per year during the growing season on our fairways and plant growth regulating them you know now we'll probably only use two pounds in for that same area you will know, we'll cut the rate by a third and i think that's fantastic for our industry and i think it's fantastic for our facility and i think that's really good for the environment the other thing that we've noticed with these, with the metrillas, at this mowing height, we do not see a difference in the water volume we put on the fairways. So that's why I really want to make sure I describe this in such a way it paints the picture of what we see. I'm not saying Bermuda and Zoya use the same amount of water, but I can tell you at four-tenths of an inch or a in half of an inch, we are watering our Zorro and our Xeon where we have it at about the same frequency and about the same volume as we were the Bermuda. We were already uh, a facility that tried to under irrigate as much as possible because we want to drive fast playing surface that's nice and firm. Other people may have different results, but I don't know that you're gonna save a lot in the way of water. Fertility inputs, no doubt about it. I think on the disease front for disease control, Uh, These zoysias certainly do get large patch. It's certainly a pathogen that the matrillas seem to get as a group, and the haponicas do as well. We've just shifted our former spring dead spot controls to large patch controls. So when you look at the net amount of money we're spending and the net amount of disease prevention that we are going out there trying to accomplish, it's about the same amount in inputs. It's just a different disease. I think that the one thing that I could also say about these, uh, about Zoysia, about these conversions is, if you're at a low budget facility where you want to spend even less, I think you could absolutely do it and still have phenomenal conditions. That And I think the conditions would still exceed that of Bermuda.
0: It's really neat to see when the two things that both golfers and superintendents care about you know playability and managing resources responsibly line up um they they don't always do that and you know the fairly regressing project that you guys have taken on sounds like it's just been a huge home run as Jordan said you know it's it's really awesome you've really developed the playbook um and and given I think a lot to the industry to sort of really think about and consider you know zoysia grass and it's you know it's exciting we've we've been funding zoysia grass breeding work at texas a&m and and bika chandra is doing a a ton there she's i think there's a few more seeded varieties that are set to be released pretty soon so um you know we're we're making some great progress and you know you you guys are a great example of of really leading the way and and demonstrating what can be possible uh, with sort of thinking outside the box so can't can't thank you enough brian this has been awesome
1: Well, I think it's fantastic for our industry and it's exciting. Anytime that we can do something that enhances the industry and is good for the environment and it might cause us to put out uh, less in the way of uh, cultural practices, I think it's a good thing. And I think this smacks
0: of it. Absolutely. Jordan, Brian, thanks so much for your time today. It's been awesome chatting and uh, look forward to catching up soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the USGA Green Section podcast. Be sure to subscribe, listen, and rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can also keep up with the latest content on Twitter and by subscribing to The Green Section Record, our digital publication that's published twice a month.